Hold up your drink. I want to guess what you're drinking. Well, you have to guess it before I hold it up. Oh, I saw the top. You're drinking up mics. Yes. Oh. Black cherry lemonade. Oh, black cherry is the best. Minus, I like the mango because I just love everything mango. True. What are you drinking? Guess. Um, Blue Moon? No. I don't know. Coffee? No. I mean, it's in a coffee cup, but no. <laughs> I give up. A wine. Uh, true. I know. I do have, I drank through those Blue Moons. Those, like, light sky ones last night, and they're pretty good. I threw an orange in there, and it was, it was pretty good for their light beer. Yeah. Orange is what really makes it for them. Yeah, exactly. Hey, what's up, guys? I'm Sarah. I'm Jordan. And welcome to Coffee, Wine, and True Crime, week four. We've somehow made it this far, and thank you for listening. So I think so much. Yes, thank you. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please please remember to rate us. Mm -hmm. It really helps us, and we'd really appreciate it. Yes. Did I go first last week? Um, I think so. Well, first week you went first. Second week I went first. Third week I went first. All right, then it's your turn. So this week my state is North Carolina. Um, So this week I am talking about John Eric Armstrong from North Carolina. Okay, I have not heard this. Me neither. Unless it's out of the Outer Banks. No. Okay, then I have not heard it. (laughs) This is a serial killer. So let's get into it. Uh, John Eric Armstrong was born on November 23rd, 1973 in Newborn, North Carolina. His father was abusive toward him and his mom, and he was sexually abused as a child. In 1978, his younger brother, Michael, died at two months from sudden infant death syndrome. And because of the overwhelming grief from his brother dying, he actually attempted suicide Mm -hmm. uh, in his younger years. And then his father left his family. And then he actually didn't receive treatment uh, for his grief until 1989. So was he like in high school when all that kind of went down? Yeah, he was like 16. Okay. Um, and then a year after he was hospitalized for locking himself in a bathroom. I don't know why I chuckled because a girl at school was pressuring him to have sex with her. Isn't that usually the opposite? Yeah. And he locked himself in the bathroom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you're reversed. I know. So I don't really, you laugh. So I don't feel bad for laughing. Um, so then by the time he was a full grown adult, this was a big dude. He was 300 pounds, which is like, very decently sized for an adult he man. he didn't play football? I don't believe so because he joined the United States Navy in 1992 and his bunkmates described him as moody and he allegedly killed his first victim in that time. Um, He served seven years on the Nimitz aircraft carrier. During his time in the Navy, he received four promotions and earned two good conduct medals. But then he left the Navy in 1999, and him and his wife moved to Dearborn Heights, um, a working-class neighborhood in Michigan. Okay, well, so he's from North Carolina, but a lot of this takes place in Michigan, so that's my bad, stepping on some other states' toes. Well, you already did Michigan, so it's okay. It counts. It's fine. He's yeah. from North Carolina, so we're just going to act like that's not a thing. So he 
So then he lived, so after they moved to Michigan, he got a job at Target and then later with the Detroit Metropolitan Airport refueling airplanes. Okay. Um, and he was seen as like a straight up normal dude. Like this is what's kind of freaky to me about this guy is that everyone described him as like the most normal kind of seemingly calm person. And he was seen as like a good neighbor, stand-up guy who was a committed husband and devoted father to his 14-month-old son. Okay, but like, so he was chilling and he just seemed to have like a normal life, like BTK, where, you know, yeah. you're a family man, but you're also a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. And I think we talked about, I'm 90% sure we talked about the like killers getting involved in their own cases and then not like foiling their whole mm-hmm. plan. Um, I think I did that last week actually, but Detroit investigators started to become suspicious of him after he contacted them saying he saw a body floating in the rogue river. He told police he was walking across a bridge when he suddenly felt ill and leaned over the bridge and saw the body. So the police pulled the body of 39-year-old Wendy Duran out of the water. Duran was known to police because she was an active drug user and prostitute. And they noted that Duran's murder was very similar to a different string of murders of prostitutes that had recently occurred. Okay, so he's um, murdering those with a more transient lifestyle because they're harder to um, obviously get missing people reports on. No one's really looking for them. Exactly. Yeah, they can just kind of go, it can go under the radar for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So investigators started to look into the possibility that a serial killer was murdering local prostitutes. And the more they looked into it, the more uh, suspicious they found his walking on the bridge story. Mm -hmm. So they decided to put him under surveillance. And then once they had Duran's DNA and um, evidence collected from like her uh, autopsy, uh, they went to Armstrong's home and got blood and fibers from his car and house. And then they, he also agreed to allow them to investigate the inside of his home. So what cracked this case was actually DNA. So they were able to test his DNA against uh, Duran's and it was a match. And then, uh, but they wanted to get the full report from the lab before they arrested Armstrong. Mm-hmm. And then on April 10th, of I think this is 2000 uh the more three more bodies were discovered in various stages of decomposition so then they uh the investigators go to areas where prostitutes are known to frequent and they ask if they'd seen a man kind of walking around picking up girls all the time and they described him as having a baby-like face and match described his car and it matched the description of the car that had been seen picking up the women who were found murdered so in total he had 11 known victims the alleged first one in 91 is not confirmed Um, a lot of them though he's claimed to have killed while in the navy so in different areas all over the world so between 1993 and 98 um He murdered 11 prostitutes and claims to have killed in Seattle, Washington, Hawaii, Hong Kong, North Carolina, Virginia, Thailand, and Singapore. That means he killed someone in Norfolk because that's where the the Navy bases are if you claim to kill someone in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Yes. Interesting. So so after getting all these statements on April 12th, 2000, they arrest him for the murder of Wendy Duran. 
And then it didn't take long after interviewing them for them for him to crack under the pressure and then admit to all of them, to basically all of the murders that he is known to committed, um, including all of the countries across the world that I mentioned. But then mm-hmm. he later recanted these. Um, okay. So it's kind of not... Sh- it's not totally confirmed, but it's probably likely. Yeah, he probably recanted because um, if there's um, extradition treaties between the U.S. and them, that he could be charged within those mm-hmm. other countries. And a lot of other countries have their prisons have worse conditions than ours, but then other countries have better prisons than ours. So it's just like really depends on the country. Yeah. Um, so then in March of 2001, he went to trial for the murder of Wendy Durand. His lawyers tried to prove he was insane, but it didn't work. And then on July 4th, 2001, he bargained to a plea of second-degree murder and as a result was sentenced to 31 years to life of life in prison for the murders of Kelly Jean Hood, Robin Brown, Rosemary Felt, and Monica Johnson. So then in total, so he was, he plea bargained for the three life sentences and then mm-hmm. um, he was found guilty of first-degree murder for the Wendy Duran case. So he's okay. so altogether he received two life sentences plus thirty-one years as punishment. Okay, so and he's his, not getting out. No, and he later said that his motive was that he killed prostitutes after his high school girlfriend broke up with him for another man, who claimed seduced her with gifts. He viewed it as a form of prostitution and began his killing spree as an act of revenge. I hate when they, like, something like that, like, something so simple like that happened in high school, and then they use it as, like, their justification. I hate that they make, that, like, he makes it out to be, like, this girl's fault. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of serial killers have um, some sort of mental illness, mm-hmm. especially narcissistic personality disorders. Mm-hmm. So and it, like social personality disorder. Yeah, so it kind of makes sense that he would like not be like he would blame himself. He would blame the girl and like not himself because he probably mm-hmm. thinks he's the best guy ever. Yeah. Um. So quick thank you to my spot my not sponsors sources, lotco.com and good old Wikipedia for helping me out with all the info I got for this case. It was a good one. Did his wife divorce him? <laughs> I couldn't find that. I'm assuming she definitely just like went down into the rabbit hole the second that he was caught and just like took the kid and just like hid from all media. Oh yeah, I feel like if I found out my significant other was like getting charged with murder, I'd be like, I, bye. It's like that meme where the guy just slowly disappears. That would like be me. Or like when Homer Simpson, the meme where he's in the bush, mm-hmm. that would just be me. And his, um, his nickname in the Navy was Opie. And also, he was also called Baby Doll a lot because of his face. Like, he, so he was like a child. 300 pounds, but he looks like a child. Mm-hmm. My God, it reminds me of that subreddit where it's called 13 or 30, where it's, like, grown. Have you seen that? I know what you're talking about, yeah. but I haven't seen it. That woman just makes me laugh. I love when grown men just have, like, the baby face, and they look like they're 10. But mm-hmm. then, like, they're, like, like, they're huge. Yeah. All right. Your turn. All right. So... Um, our Insta and Twitter polls told me that this week y'all voted. I'm doing Arizona. And when this, um, my friend Brittany, who we mentioned before, who lives in Arizona, told me to find a case that would make her want to move. 
Hi, Brittany. I took that advice and went the total opposite way with it. Yes. (laughs) As, as I do and as she should be expected that I do by now. So sorry, not sorry, Brittany. So my case this week is Eva Dugan, the first and last woman to be legally executed by hanging in Arizona. Ooh. And Eva Dugan was born in 1878 in Salisbury, Missouri, but she moved to Juneau, Alaska after relocating due to the Klondike Gold Rush of 1896. Alaska. Yes. She becomes an Alaska person pretty quick. Ooh. So because of, like, the gold rush and a bunch of miners and everyone moving up there, she became a cabaret singer and or prostitute and got the nickname Clawfinger Kitty. (laughs) So sometime um, while she was in Alaska, she had two children. Um, Okay. So between the time she was in Alaska and the time she committed the murder in 1927, she had five husbands where four of them mysteriously disappeared. That's sus. Yeah, so I feel like, I couldn't find anything why, but I feel like she probably fed them to bears. I don't know why, I just got that feeling. They just or had, them, had them on, on standby. <laughs> exactly. Once like, she liked the bachelor. Exactly. The bachelor. It's the bachelor, except you marry them all and then just kill them off. Exactly, you kill them off one by one. So, <laughs> at some point, she moved to Pima County, Arizona, which is the county that um tucson is in and then like the counties in arizona are huge so it's like tucson and then like way west like they just have a bunch out west in 1927 she worked as a housekeeper for andrew j mathis who was an elderly chicken rancher he was apparently extremely cranky as i expect him to be not surprising so in january 1927 after two weeks on the job she was fired for unknown reasons quickly after eva was fired mathis disappeared and so did some of his possessions including his dodge coupe oh i wonder how that happened hmm i don't know so pima county sheriff jim mcdonald um was looking into his dis- mathis's disappearance because he was someone reported him missing mm-hmm. or something um so it found he went in the house and found that his cash box was missing um and outside, he found his, he found Mathis's charred ear trumpet, like, it's essentially an old-time hearing aid. Yeah. And, but besides that, everything in the house was, like, in order. It doesn't look like he moved, like, you know, it was just kind of, like, a few things are gone, but besides that, the house, like, is in order. Yeah. And because of this, he suspected foul play. Yeah. So, when Sheriff McDonald was talking to some neighbors, um, the neighbor said that Eva tried to sell some of Mathis's possessions before she also disappeared. Sus. Yes. So McDonald tried began working to track Eva and um, Mathis because at this point they think Mathis still might be alive. So mm-hmm. they send out missing persons flyers of her and Mathis all around the U.S. So because of this, um, Sheriff McDonald found that found out that Eva was spotted in Kansas City, Missouri at a car dealership where she sold Mathis's Dodge for $600, which I feel like is actually a decent amount for back then. Yeah, that's not cheap, I don't think. Yeah. Hold on. I'm going to Google $600 in 1927. It'd be 8700 in today's money. Okay, so that's definitely decent for sure. Yeah, for car. that's a lot of money. So, 
when people at the dealership asked who she was and why she was selling the car, she said she was Mrs. Andrew Mathis and needed to sell the car because her husband needed surgery and to pay for it, they needed the money. So that's, for the few months, that's the last time anyone saw her, um, well, saw her and reported it. Yeah. Um, so she was located in late February, early March of 1927 in White Plains, New York. Um, after, after a White Plains, New York postal worker recognized her as she was sending a letter to her father in California. And at this time, Eva was working at a hospital. Okay. So. Because it's like easy to go under the radar back then. Yeah, because I mean, you have no internet activity and there was no like credit. I don't think there was credit cards. No, credit cards didn't come till 1960. So you're paying for everything in cash. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really easy to go under the radar there mm-hmm. that time. So um, she was extradited to Arizona on March 4th, 1927, on charges of car theft, and was found guilty and sentenced to um, prison. So they still think Mathis is missing. They think at this point he's probably dead, but they have no evidence. Mm -hmm. So nine months later, a camper from Oklahoma was camping on Mathis's land, and he found his he found Mathis's body in a shallow grave after he was like pounding in his tent post into the ground. Mm-hmm. And an autopsy showed that he uh, met Mathis had been killed with an axe. The police like go to question Eva and they're like, yo, did you kill him? Yeah. I, I assume that's exactly how they said it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she told this story that a young man named Jack who worked on the ranch was the one who killed Mathis after the two had gotten into a fight. And Jack was the one to steal his car, and she went with him in fear, in fear that she was next, and going with him was, like, the safest option. Sus. She couldn't give the last name for Jack. No one ever heard of the Jack. No one knew who Jack was, and he never showed up. <laughs> so Eva was charged with the murder of Mathis. Good. So the trial was super quick and was mainly based off circumstantial evidence because they didn't have any forensics that Eva killed him. Yeah. However, she was found guilty pretty quickly of murder and sentenced to death. Her last statement to the jury during the trial was, well, I'll die with my boots on and in full health, and that's more in than most of you old coots I'll be able to boast on. And I don't know what that means. I guess it's like she's gonna die while she's still young and pretty. Yeah. Or that she'll die with a good conscience? I don't know. But, I mean, it kind of goes with the good conscience thing because she continued to um, say she was innocent until the end. Mm -hmm. So she was in jail for two years um, before she was killed. And this was, like, when everything was super quick because she went through all her appeals within two years. So, like, the the court system was, like, on that shit. Mm Mm-hmm. So during her two years in jail, she gave interviews for the press for $1 and she sold um, embroidered handkerchiefs to pay for her own coffin. So she just got like a nicer one than I guess whatever they would put other prisoners in when they died. Mm -hmm. The night before her hanging on February 20th, 1930, um, there were rumors going around that she was going to try to cheat the system and kill herself. 
So when guards searched her in her cell, they found raw ammonia and razor blades hidden in one of her dresses. But besides that, it was pretty common for family and friends to visit their loved ones on death row before the night before they're killed. So she didn't have any family with her at the time she was killed or the night before, but she visited with friends and was said to be in like good spirits. Mm-hmm. So on February 21st, 1930 at 5 a.m., she was taken to the gallows to be hanged. On the way to the gallows, she told the guards like, don't hold my arm so tight that people will think I'm afraid. So she wanted to go showing that she wasn't afraid of death and like mm-hmm. she wasn't a coward, I guess. Yeah, like a power move. So this was the first legal execution of a woman in Arizona, and it was, like, witnessed by a bunch of spectators. Mm-hmm. But it was, like, in the jail. It wasn't, like, a public hanging. Yeah. What they did was you stood on top of a trap drawer. They wrapped the noose around your neck, put a, put a, um, like, a sheet over your head. Yeah. And then they just open the trap door, and then you fall to your death, essentially. Yeah. So she stood under the trap door, was super composed while they put the noose around her neck, and when asked if she had any final words, she just shook her head no. At 5.11 a.m., the trap doors were opened, and she was hanged at the age of 52. However, there was a hiccup during this. The person who was conducting the hanging, like, miscalculated her weight, and I guess, like, how long of a rope, and, like, I don't know how they do it, but whatever. So she fell to the end of the rope, and the rope snapped and decapitated her, yeah. So oh <laughs> she got decapitated. Oh my god. So her head rolled to a corner within a few feet of the spectators and at least five people fainted. You had one job. I know you had one job not to fuck this up and you <laughs> fucked it up big time. So because everyone was like, oops, we fucked up. Um, the state of Arizona decided they should probably no longer hang people. (laughs) Yeah. So Eva was the last woman to be hanged, like I said, in Arizona, and she was also the first legal person to be hanged. So she was the first and last woman to be hanged in Arizona. Hmm. And only after her, two people were hanged in the state, and Arizona moved to a gas chamber in 1934. Okay. Um, so Eva is buried at the Arizona State Prison Ceremony Cemetery in Florence, Arizona. And if you are so inclined to see the noose that she was hanged with, as I know we all are, mm-hmm. um, the incredibly long, not well made noose. noose. It's in the Pima County Historic Society and Museum in Florence, Arizona. So when I go to Arizona for Brittany's wedding, I think I know where I'm going for one day. <laughs> Road trip. Road trip. Yeah, no, I'm actually not going to do that because I really want to go to the Grand Canyon. True. That was really good, though. Damn, she got decapitated. Yeah. I didn't know. I that. know. I was, like, reading cases. I was like, oh, shit, she got decapitated. I'm doing this one. I didn't know nooses could do that. Like, they, that they yeah. could be so tight that they could literally, like, cut your head off. Yeah, so my thinking is that when they actually hang someone, they don't have, like, when you fall to your death, there's still some give on the rope. So then, like, it's not suffocating you so much that your head falls off but Mm -hmm. but I think maybe this one it was fully all the way so that's why it snapped she snapped Mm -hmm. she bitch snapped (laughs) good one so my sources were wikipedia murderpedia findagrave.com and usa today 
And when I was on findagrave.com, like, people can leave flowers, like, pay to leave flowers at her grave. People fucking were paying to leave flowers at her grave. Oh, my God. Probably, like, extended family members from, like, now. Dude, I don't know. It was, I was laughing. I was a little freaked out by that. Like, you're gonna leave flowers at a murderer's grave. Yeah, that's okay. That's weird. Yeah, so, that's my case from Arizona. Brittany probably still wants to live in this state. Um, So, sorry, Brittany. And I just finished my drink, so perfect timing. I still have wine in mine. <laughs> so yeah, like we said, um, shoot us a shoot us five star review on Apple Podcast and subscribe. And thank you for listening. If you're listening on any other platforms like Spotify or Anchor, I believe we're still on Anchor. Yeah, we're on Overcast. We're on TuneIn, I believe, and I believe we're on Google Podcast. I submitted us to be like last week, but I haven't gotten confirmation slash I haven't looked. Got it. You should look. <laughs> One sec. We are on Google Podcasts. Yes, we are. We have a nice little explicit sign next to ours because I can't stop saying fuck. <laughs> Good. <laughs> All right. Well, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at CWATC Podcast and on Instagram at coffee wine and true crime podcast and if you have a case idea or got like some crazy story you want us to read shoot us an email or dm our email is coffee wine and true crime podcast at gmail.com so send us in your stories i think that'd be interesting um i'm still waiting until i get a good story to tell yeah same here (laughs) yeah i haven't come across any dead bodies or anything me neither not in my personal personal life (laughs) well thanks for listening everybody thanks for listening have a good week yep have a great week welcome to cold brew a true crime podcast i'm your host caitlin brewer and i'm inviting you to grab your coffee and join me every other monday as i share these stories with you case by case from an unsolved small town triple homicide to an axe murdering wife and even an unidentified serial killer that is still out there and could possibly live in my neighborhood. We'll cover facts, theories, conspiracies, and even false media nonsense. You can listen to Cold Brew now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow me on social media at Cold Brew Crime to learn more. See you soon!